You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. If you have your Bible, maybe you'd turn there to that passage in Luke chapter 19. If you were here, the last time I was here, I think the last time I was here, I did a parable. And if it wasn't the last time, it may have been the time before. And it was a parable very similar to this, but it wasn't the same parable, just in case you think, oh, he's preaching the same parable. I'm sure the day will come when that will happen. I'll be in my dotage, and uh, I, I will probably do something like that. But, uh, well, I hope I don't. But anyway, you and I are living in the time period between the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of God and his return again. And in the meantime, the time between his ascension and his coming again, he has given us a job to do. He has given us work to do. He has left work for the church, his church, to get on with. We don't know when he shall return, but we know that when he does return, he will deal with the three kinds of persons that are found in the parable that is before us. The faithful servants, the unfaithful servant, and the rebelling citizens. And very simply, we're just going to look at those three types of people that are mentioned there in the parable, beginning first with the faithful servants. And that's outlined for us there in verses 15 to 19. Let's just remind ourselves of what it says there. Verse 15, he was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter take charge of 10 cities. Uh, The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. So, thinking about these faithful servants, um, this, this parable is about service. It's not about salvation. It's about service. And we know three things about the faithful servants that I want to draw out from the passage. The first thing we know about the faithful servants is this, that they knew their responsibility. The Lord had said to them, what was his command? Uh, Let me see. He says, put this money to work. Or as another translation puts it, do business until I come. Put this money to work or do business until I come. come." That was the command. And the faithful servants knew their responsibility to the master. Each servant had the same amount of money and was supposed to put it to work to gain more. In this parable, there are 10 servants and each receives the same amount. The last parable, if you remember, there were three servants, and they were given different amounts. This is ten servants. They're given the same amount. A mina, or as another translation puts it, a pound, represented about three months' wages. This raises the question about what the mina or the pound represents in the parable. 
And since all the servants had the same amount, the mina or the pound must represent something that all God's servants possess. And that can only be the gospel message. You and I, if you're a Christian, you and I have been put in trust with the gospel, as Paul puts it in his first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse 4. You and I have been put in trust with the gospel. Paul, Paul talks about the treasure of the gospel that's been put in, in earthen vessels. It's a treasure. It's a trust. And it's handed on from generation to generation. And what we have to do is, yes, we've be, we have to protect it from being polluted or weakened or watered down, but also to share it so that more and more people might come to know the Lord. Paul often referred to the stewardship of the gospel in his letters, in 1 Timothy, for instance, and in 2 Timothy. And, and before he returned to heaven, Jesus commissioned his followers to take the gospel to the whole world and to multiply it everywhere. That is, do business until I come. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the gospel is indeed a treasure. Paul described it as a treasure in earthen vessels, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. We must guard it, but we must also invest it so that it will multiply and save many. So the first thing we can say about the faithful servants is this. They knew their responsibility. Now, it begs the obvious question, doesn't it? Fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know your responsibility? If you're a child of God, then you have a similar responsibility. It's not something that you can pass on to your minister or your elder. This, if you're a child of God, this this is a charge to you. This is something that you must do. This is something that you must be involved in. You have a responsibility. Being a Christian brings great blessings, but also great responsibilities. So we have this responsibility to do business until he comes. And the first thing we can see here is that they knew their responsibility. The second thing we can say about the faithful servants is that they did their job faithfully. They did their job faithfully. We're not given the exact number of the servants who were faithful to their master, but we assume that nine out of the ten were in that category. Each of them multiplied the resources that they had received. Now, I suppose, I suppose they could have used excuses for not doing business. They could, for example, have said, well, you know, it's not really a great deal of money. They could have argued that. Why worry about putting it to work? We must never think of the gospel as small or insignificant. Listen to how Paul describes the gospel. In, in the book of Romans, he says, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God 
unto salvation to everyone who believes. And I, I just want to encourage you that if you have the opportunity to say a word for the Lord, even though you don't know how you're going to get through your first sentence, how you're going to get to the end of your first sentence, open your mouth and speak. And God will give you the word to say. You don't know how God can use that. I've often used the illustration, and I'm sure I've probably used it here too. Those are things I don't keep an account of. The story of C.H. Spurgeon's conversion. C.H. Spurgeon was a mighty man of God, uh, converted in the um, late 18, well, the mid-1800s, powerfully used of God. A young man set out to go to church one snowy morning. He couldn't get to his normal church because of the snow. Turned into this Wesleyan chapel. It was a primitive Wesleyan chapel. Whatever that is, it must be a, 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 a part of Methodism. But a primitive Wesleyan chapel it was called. And he turned in and the preacher didn't turn up because of the weather. Or maybe his name was Eddie Kirk, like me. You know, late. Or, or got the dates mixed up. But anyway, he didn't turn up. So one of the leading men in the church got up and he, and he really couldn't preach, but he had a text. And he got up and he announced the text. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And he, and he read it again. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And he didn't know what else to say. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth. And he looked down directly at Spurgeon, not looking over anywhere here. Let's say he's there. You look a miserable young man. Look unto me and be ye saved. And in that moment, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was converted. He was, I think, about 17, 18 years of age. Within two or three years, Spurgeon was preaching and hundreds and hundreds of people were flocking to hear this boy wonder preacher. In the account of his conversion, he never mentions the name of the man who preached that day. You know why? He didn't know his name. The man who was preaching had no idea, well, I say preaching, got up and said what he had to say. He had no idea who this miserable-looking young man was. He had no idea he had a hand in the conversion of C.H. Spurgeon, but I'm sure that man in years to come read the sermons of C.H. Spurgeon because to this day his sermons are published and they're still being used to gather in people to God's kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. So, these, the, these servants could have said, it's not a great deal of money, so why, why would you bother? You could say, well, look, you know, what can I say? Like, what do I know? And, and you might think, it's not really worth trying. But it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the message. So, they could have used that excuse, it's not a great deal of money, or they, they could have used the excuse, why... Why bother? What will I get out of it? The, the nobleman didn't promise 
the servants anything, do you notice? He, he simply told them to get busy. And, and we ought to be faithful simply because the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded us. But the promised rewards do encourage us, don't they? Or they could have used the excuse, how do I know he'll ever come back, these faithful servants? You know, he said, oh, how do we know we'll ever see him again? That's another excuse for doing nothing. But the difference is Christians know, not think, not hope. Christians are sure that Jesus is coming again. He came the first time just as the Scriptures promised. He came exactly as the Scriptures promised. And he'll come the second time just as he promised he would do. And if these men had reasons to be faithful, well, you and I have even more. Because we're living in an age, you know, after the canon of Scripture is completed. When Jesus told this parable, the Jews only had the writings from the Old Testament. They didn't have any of the New Testament. We have the New Testament. We have, if you like, the whole story, if you like the whole gospel story. So we're in a much, much more privileged position. Yet how prone we are to make excuses. The gospel pound has been in the world for 20 centuries, or 21 centuries, and still there are multitudes who have never had an opportunity to hear the message of salvation. And let me tell you, there are multitudes, even in our society, who have never heard the gospel. That's, that's, I find that incredible, even as I say it, but it's the truth. There's at least a couple of generations now that are coming through our schools that have no idea about the gospel. So we need to make sure that we're making the most of every opportunity. They, they could have said it's not a great deal of money. They could have said, why bother? What will I get out of it? They could have said, how do I know he'll ever come back? So they did their job faithfully. The third thing about them is that they were rewarded for their faithfulness. Remember, no reward had been promised. No reward. But yet, when they came and said, here's what we were able to do, the master said, I'll put you in, because you're faithful in that small matter, I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. To another, I'm going to put you in charge of five cities. God doesn't have to reward us for serving him faithfully. The truth is, we ought to be faithful whenever we consider all that he has done for us. We should be glad to serve him, to show our appreciation. We're not serving him in order to curry favor with him. We have been favored beyond all favor because he has lavished his love upon us when we didn't deserve it. So as a thank offering to him, we want to serve him. And yet, God in his grace gives us rewards I want you to notice here that not all of the servants had the same success. 
One multiplied his pound ten times, another multiplied his five times. And we mustn't expect every believer to produce the same results. Some will produce 30, some 60, some 100-fold, and some more. He asks us to be faithful and to use our abilities for his glory. So it begs a question again. I wonder, fellow believer, are you doing that? Are you using your gifts and abilities that God has been pleased to bless you with? God has gifted you, you specifically, with certain abilities. Are you using them for his glory? Or are you hiding your light under a bushel? Are you hiding in the church? Now, that's a big temptation to Christians, isn't it? To get into a congregation, you know, a busy congregation and just hide. Just just free wheel, as it were. Are you doing everything that you can to promote God's glory in this place? Is It's easier, isn't it, if you think about it, it's easier to sit back and to criticize what others are doing rather than roll up our sleeves and get involved ourselves. Some people have the idea that the reward for faithfulness is less work and less responsibility. But just the opposite, I believe, is true. Imagine ruling over five cities. Imagine. Jesus taught in this parable that the reward for faithful work, you know what it is? The reward for faithful work is more work. That's not it. The reward for faithful work is more work. And, and that, is, that is a truth. That's a law, if you like. And not only more work, but an increased capacity to serve the Lord. You see, the work we do today is preparation for the work that he's prepared for us tomorrow. Let me give you what I have learned over the years in regard to this. Faithfulness is the secret to growth. Faithfulness is the secret to growth. We see it in so many areas of the Christian life. Private prayer, in Bible study, doing something in public. You know, as you're asked to do something, maybe someone in the church sees some potential in you and says, I wonder, could you do that wee job for me? And it might be something, it might be something trivial. You know, it might be meeting people at the door. It, it, might, be, it might be going to visit someone and you, and you think, I could never do that. But, but do it, just do it. And the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. And then actually, other people will see increased potential. And they'll ask you to do more. And they'll ask you, to, and not only will they ask you to do more, but your ability to do more will increase. That is how you grow as a Christian. David, you remember, was faithful in taking care of his father's sheep. And here's the amazing thing. God was able to entrust the nation to him because he was faithful. 
just in looking after the sheep. Joshua was faithful as Moses' servant, and God made him Moses' successor. Timothy was Paul's right-hand man, and, and he, Timothy felt so young and inadequate. But God enabled him to grow and to develop. So there was the faithful servants. They knew the responsibility, they did their jobs faithfully, and they were rewarded for their faithfulness. And then there was the unfaithful servant. And we read about, about him in verses 20 to 26. Let's look at it. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money in deposit so that when I come back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. The unfaithful servant. Three things about him I want you to notice. First of all, he knew his job, but he didn't do it. He knew his job, but he didn't do it. He heard the same command as the others. You know, do business until I come. He even call, called a nobleman Lord, and, and yet he didn't do what the Lord commanded. He didn't lose his pound, but neither did he invest it. He saved it. Unfaithfulness is sin, brothers and sisters. Unfaithfulness is sin. It has been said that the greatest ability is dependability. I think that's true. The greatest ability is dependability. For us to fail to do the work that Christ has assigned for us to do is to slight his word and to insult his person. Jesus asked on one occasion, do you remember, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? That's a very challenging question, isn't it? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? You know, the way that we show our love to the Lord. The Lord, the Lord doesn't just tell us, I've said this often before, he doesn't just tell us that he loves us, he demonstrates it by sending his son to die on the cross. We should not just tell the Lord that we love him. How do we demonstrate that we love him? We demonstrate that we love him by obeying his word, by doing what he says. And, and that, is, that is always the case. Our words can never substitute for our deeds. The unfaithful servant, he knew his job, but he didn't do it. Secondly, he was unfaithful because his heart was not in it. His heart was not right with his master. If you had asked this servant, do you believe your master's coming back? He would have said, of course I believe it. Of course I believe it. 
but he didn't live what he believed. His theology was excellent, but his practice was terrible. Is that a word for some of us? Many Christians today will defend the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, but they won't lift a finger to do as well. The servant didn't love his master. He feared him. There is a proper fear of the Lord, not a fear that paralyzes, but a fear that mobilizes us to serve him. You see, love and faithfulness go together, don't they? The husband and wife who love each other will be faithful to each other. Christians who love their Lord will want to be faithful to him. They'll want to do the work that he gives them to do. He knew his job, but he didn't do it. He was unfaithful because his heart was not right with his master. And thirdly, his unfaithfulness cost him his reward. What did he lose? Well, he lost his opportunity. The master returned and the period of testing was over. The servant would, uh, would have no further opportunities to invest the money and to earn dividends. And if this parable teaches us anything, it certainly teaches us this. The future is today. What we do with today determines what will be done with us tomorrow. He lost his opportunity and he lost his pound. He proved unworthy and so his pound was given to the servant who proved that he could be trusted. And there's a biblical principle here. What we don't use, we lose. And what we gain will gain us more. And he lost his reward. He lost his opportunity, he lost his pound, and he lost his reward. The nobleman had many cities to share, but the unfaithful servant didn't get one. What an indictment. What an indictment. This man couldn't be trusted with any additional work. Jesus promises in Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. When Christ returns, he will deal with the faithful servants, and he'll deal with the unfaithful servants. But he will also deal with a third kind of person, and that is a rebellious citizen. And that's mentioned in verses 14 and 27. Look at verse 14. But his subjects hated him, and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Verse 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. The rebellious citizen. We don't want this man to be our king. And the immediate application in the parable is to the nation of Israel. That was, that was the nation of Israel. You know, in John 1, it says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But there's a much wider application, is there not? When the Lord returns, he will have to punish those who would not bow before him and submit to his will. Sad to say, sad to say most of the people in our world want nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Romans 3, verse 11, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. But praise God, God is seeking after man. Look at, look at verse 10. That's why I read verse 10, the, the bit that leads into this parable. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. It was God who took the initiative. But for that initiative, none of us would ever have sought him. None of us would ever have come under conviction of sin. None of us would have wanted to please him. But it was God who came searching for us. God is seeking after men. Are the heathen lost? Yes, they are, according to Scripture. But the heathen in our community, I would argue, are more lost than anybody else because they have had greater opportunities to be saved. To whom much is given, much shall be required. There are very few people in our province who will be able to say, I never heard, nobody ever told me. We have such a rich heritage of gospel truth in this land that that people are without excuse. This is not a day of judgment. It's a day of grace. And, and it's still the day when any rebellious citizen can be saved. The Bible tells us that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but all would come to repentance. So let me ask you as we, as we conclude, Fellow believer, how are you using all the gifts and abilities? How are you using all the opportunities and influences that God has given you? Maybe you're a parent. That's a wonderful privilege to bring up children. Maybe you think, you know, what can I do? I'm, I'm, I'm a full-time housewife. I have a lot of children to look after. What can I do for the Lord? Well, that's your mission field. Your children, your home. Maybe you're a grandparent. And maybe your son or daughter is really stretched. What can you do? You can lend a hand there. You can pray for your children. You can pray for your grandchildren. You can give practical help. Maybe you're a student. What can you do? Well, you can share the gospel as God gives you opportunity. I'm not saying you go around and buttonhole people. But listen, there are lots of opportunities. And you know this because I remember. I remember the opportunities I had that I ignored. And they were so obvious. And I, I chickened out to my shame. I regret that. And I'm sure it's the same for you. There are opportunities that come. Don't miss those opportunities. As I said earlier, just to say a word, maybe you think it doesn't make much sense, but God, the Holy Spirit, can take it and use it. You know, it's amazing what people think of us. It really is. I remember a fellow that actually I came through school with, uh, came through the tech with, we served our apprenticeship together. He, he was a Roman Catholic, a very devout Roman Catholic, a very good friend of mine. And I remember we came right through, we worked at Aldergrove together. And I remember the time came when, when I was, I had to take this call of God seriously and I was leaving the Ministry of Defense. 
And I remember confiding in him this day and said, Chris, uh, promise not to laugh when I tell you what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm uh, taking, I think it was early voluntary retirement at age 27 it was. And I'm going to prepare for the ministry of the Presbyterian Church. And I expected him to scoff. He said, I'm not a bit surprised. You know, I was shocked. I, I was totally shocked that he said that. But people notice. People notice if you'll say a word. Maybe you're working in an office. You know, and there are people that you're working beside that never darken the church door, that never sit under the word of God. Listen, those people will come through the difficulties of, of life that everybody comes through. A, a sudden illness, a serious illness, or a death. Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher, and you think, oh, what can I do? <clears throat> what? They're, they're the unsung heroes, Sunday school teachers, the unsung heroes of the church. You have the opportunities to plant the seed of the Word of God into those young minds and hearts. That's a, that's a mission field. Or a youth leader. Or, you know, look, this morning Scott was mentioning all these opportunities. You need somebody on the reception committee. Or, or helping with, with uh, youth leaders or on the sound desk. You know, th those, are, those are useful things. A musician or anything that, that contributes to the work of God in this place. Grab it with both hands. You know, I, I read recently that just last week, I think it came out, there are more vacant jobs outside now in industry than there are people to fill them. I mean, I remember, I remember when I was young, the unemployment rate in Northern Ireland was about 13%. Today, it's down about 2%. But there are more jobs than there are people to fill them. Well, in the church, that has always been the case. There, there has always been situations vacant in the church, always. And so there are many, many opportunities to serve the Lord. But are you willing? Are you looking for the opportunities? Has God the Holy Spirit been nudging you? Bringing something to your attention that maybe you should consider? Wouldn't it be great, you know, for the, for the eldership in either of these congregations? For, for someone in the congregation to come along and say, look, I, could I help in any way? Is there anything that I can do for you? They might die of shock, actually. But it's a wonderful thing when a volunteer comes. I remember one particular girl in my, uh, in First Ohochel, and uh, she just was a wonderful, wonderful young Christian. It didn't matter what I asked Kirsty to do. She would say, aye, all right. I mean, it, it didn't matter what I asked her to do. I, I remember one time at a, a congregational meeting, uh, AGM used to be called, or Congregational Social. I remember asking her, I want you to sing a piece, and I want you to sing it. She was a beautiful singer, mind you. She really was gifted. I want you to sing it unaccompanied. 
I all right. And boy, she did it wonderfully. But there's a girl, it didn't matter what you asked her to do, she would have a go at it. And, and it didn't, if, I mean, she never failed at anything, I would have to tell you. But it's through failures, actually, that we grow and develop. So I'll leave these things with you. But here's the greatest vacancy. Let me mention the greatest vacancy of all for Christians. And I'm getting blinded here. Get out of your light. The greatest vacancy in the church for Christians is the vacancy for prayer. It's the smallest meeting of the church. Now, I don't know if Union Road and La Comfort are different than any other place. But let me tell you, any place I've been involved in, the smallest meeting of the church. It is the most important meeting of the church. That's the powerhouse. That is where the work is done. The work for the kingdom is done at the throne of grace. And we need people. And I'm talking about the whole church. Needs people to come and pray. You maybe say, oh, I'm not a great prayer. Well, I would say it's the hardest thing to do in the Christian life. Without a doubt, it's the hardest thing. And I don't care whether it's in the secret place at home or in public. It's the hardest thing to do. But it's the most important work that you can be involved in. Imagine the encouragement that you could be at your midweek meeting to see a whole lot of you turn up that they have to get more chairs out. What a thought in the prayer meeting. We haven't enough chairs out in the prayer meeting. More people, And it might be that you can't pray publicly, but you can still pray with those who are praying. What an encouragement you would be to the oversight in this place. I'll leave it there. Let's pray. Thank you.